At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, well, I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'd like to say I'm coming from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, but I'm happy to tell you that I'm not. Uh, I'm in uh, St. John's County in Florida, right near Duval County in Florida, the Jacksonville vicinity. Uh, this is about 40 miles from the Georgia border, and a chance I have uh, to spend a lot of time. I have this great affiliate, WOKV. And uh, in Jacksonville, it's one of the first affiliates we're able to get and be able to carry live. And anytime I can come into town and be able to see uh, see the great anchors they have, the great talent they have, uh, and have a chance to be in this area, I definitely do it. And then being that we try to get the people involved so much into what we're doing, if you're an anchor or reporter, whether you're Lawrence Jones or Pete Hegseth or uh, Steve Ducey or Ainsley Earhart, if you're traveling, and you can stick around and do a diner and get to know the people, we'll broadcast from there. And that's exactly what's happened this morning. I was at the Metro Diner uh, in Ponte Vedra, right off A1A. And it's a pretty big diner, big, uh, uh, a big patio. Did not expect a crowd that big, but indeed they did, in fact, show up. And I appreciate that. This is a hotbed for Fox viewers. And I would say this, more than Democrat or Republican, extremely patriotic area. The other thing I'd say that characterizes this area is a lot of military. Um, you, got, uh, you got Mayport. Obviously, an active military naval base. Got it. But what you have is a lot of people in the military, they'll travel around and they'll choose to come back here and live. A lot of the Jaguars, you get traded, you retire, they'll come back here and live. Uh, And then you have a lot of younger people coming here. I believe it's the fastest growing county. I think uh, Duval and and St. John's County, the fastest growing in the country, so that have come to a part of their success story. One of the big things uh, that's happening this week, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, next week, I'll have a chance to see him. Uh, as we go back and see some of the fields he played at, the town he grew up in, because his book is out, The Color and Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. So he gave us some time uh, because he likes this show, always has. He actually represented this area in Congress, and he gave us some time in for one of the first interviews for his brand-new book. Now, what he's doing is not going over things you don't know about. He's going over the days he went to Congress. What were the big stories then? He's going over the days when he was in the military. What was the big story? Iraq and Afghanistan, of course. What was the big story? He ran for governor, and, and, uh, and a, it was almost a runoff, but it was, so, uh, it was about 32,000 votes separated, him winning and losing, and then he wins by 19 percentage points for re-election where people are saying, hey, this guy's running for president. The problem is, uh, for Ron DeSantis, is a tweet that, Donald Trump put out, really helped swing and get him the nomination for governor and the Republican side for him to win that very close election and keep Florida like Rick Scott left it in the Republican column. So Ron DeSantis has worked with Donald Trump. They've been hand in glove the whole time. Donald Trump wants to run and get four more years in office. And Trump only knows one thing. Uh, that is go for the jugular. And if Ron DeSantis is his problem. He's going to go after him, and he has. And so far, Governor DeSantis has kept his powder dry, even though all his instincts and his whole career, he's been a fighter, taking on all comers. He could pretty much outthink you. He's got a background that is military. It's got Yale. It's got Harvard. It's got Congress. It's got war. And now he's got governor running a state. And the guy's 44 years old with three kids. So he understands family, understands marriage, understands military, understands Ivy League. He understands the Midwest because that's where his parents hail from. And he certainly understands Florida, the fastest growing, I believe, the fastest growing state, maybe including Texas in the country. 
So he's got a lot going for him. So we have a chance to talk about that this hour. And, uh, and of course, take your calls at one 408 7669 to close it out. So I'll be getting your thoughts, too, about the interview. And people say that he's not personable. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I think he's personable. I've spent a day with him, uh, starting in the governor's mansion, going to four or five events, hopping on a plane. We never were short of conversation. To me, if you are not personable and have a problem, you don't become captain of the Yale baseball team, a job that, or excuse me, a position that George H.W. Bush earned after fighting in a war. And he knew nobody when he walked on campus. His family was not a legacy. No one even heard of Yale, went to Yale then, and he had to work two jobs at least during the season and after the season because he had no money to pay for tuition. Back then, they really couldn't maneuver scholarships with the Ivy Leaguers. So that's his story. It's all in his book. I just find it funny that uh, the New York Times goes out of its way to review it and pan it. Okay, what else is new? Uh, the New York Times gets roasted in this book, justifiably, not using anonymous sources, but using their quotes and how they were wrong. Anthony Fauci also takes a justified bath, uh, as does a lot of people who challenge him, like 60 Minutes on down. So I wanted to bring you a two-part interview with Governor Ron DeSantis. And I know you're going to be hearing a lot from him. I think this is a little bit different of a take. So when we come back here on the Brian Kilmeade Show this on this day from Ponte Vedra, uh, Florida, not from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, you'll hear... Uh, both parts. And then we're going to try to post the interview online on BrianKillMeShow.com, or you'll probably get it on all the uh, my social media on down to get an idea of why everyone on the left is so afraid of Ron DeSantis, how he's not lost uh, any of the sparring sessions with the media. And he certainly has done anything but uh, push people away in Florida. And the other thing is, the big question is for any candidate Republican, can they win independents? Can they win moderates? Can they win over moderate Democrats and undecideds? Because Republicans might be great to be popular Republicans. You might get you a, a big speaking fee, get you a lot of donor dollars, but won't get you the White House. I'm Brian Kilmeade. So glad you're listening on this special hour on the Tuesday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. And we come back. Uh, my two-part interview with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Here at first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. The Brian Kilmeade Show on the road to Ponte Vedra, Florida. Ironically, I believe this is the congressional district that Ron DeSantis represented when he went to Congress for the first time, slept in his office, would spend about nine days there a month, gave up all stock trading to do it. He also said, uh, immediately said, I don't want your pension. I don't want your health care coverage. Maybe because his wife had was covered by the PGA and she's a local affiliate, too. But I think that's what he stood for. He is not for being able to influence, have anyone accuse him of influencing his pocketbook by the uh, issues that he gets behind. And I think you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you accuse him of an ethics violation because I can't find any. And people have challenged it over and over again. So in Governor Ron DeSantis, when he popped on, he's doing a bunch of interviews, but he made time for us. And when he popped on, the first thing I ask and one of the biggest surprises is, that leads to one of the biggest stories with Ron DeSantis, and that's with Disney, is where he got married. Uh, I was shocked by it, a no-nonsense military guy. Maybe not you, because I have a family that loves this place too. 
I've never been the biggest fan, but I go along with it. And I think that's another way in which I see eye to eye with the governor. Here's part one of my interview with Governor Ron DeSantis on his book, The Courage to Be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Governor, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So ironically, Governor, you're out with your second book, but without your first one, I would say there's no Congressman DeSantis and there's no Governor DeSantis. Am I correct? You know, in a, in a roundabout way, maybe. I mean, I had gotten out of the military. I was, uh, you know, dabbling in different things. And this was a time where, you know, you kind of had the Tea Party movement, a lot of a lot of energy. And I thought maybe I could just provide commentary kind of in my spare time, maybe write a little bit. And so I ended up doing that. And what it did is it took me in different parts around Florida where I would speak to like 100 people. I'd sell 20, 30 books, and we'd go around Florida doing that. And what happened was a lot of these people that were buying the book were saying, hey, you should run for office. And I'm like, well, run for what? Well, then what happened was they did the reapportionment in 2012. They created a new congressional district where we lived, uh, my wife and I at the time, in Ponte Vedra Beach. And so I started No Name ID, No Money, six-month campaign, and we ended up winning a seven-way primary by 15 points. And you just you just gutted it out, knocking on doors, your wife's celebrity in Jacksonville as a, a very well-respected anchor, going from neighborhood to neighborhood. You don't hear stories like that anymore. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I you got to work to raise money, of course, and I did, and and we ended up doing doing good in that. But the best way to convince someone to vote for you is to knock on their door, shake their hand, look them in the eye, and ask for their vote. And especially in a primary situation where everyone kind of says they're so conservative, right? They all take the same positions. Just the fact that you were able to meet somebody, you know, that could be the difference. And then my wife would do too. So what we ended up doing is we bought her a little scooter. So I had a pickup truck, I have 150. So we would go and you have the map of the homes because, you know, if you are my neighbor, but you don't vote in Republican primaries, I'm not knocking on your door. If your neighbor always votes in Republican primaries, I'm knocking on their door. So we had, we knew the homes we'd have to do. So she would go on the scooter in one part of the neighborhood. I'd go on the truck in the other. We'd knock and then we'd meet kind of in the middle and then we'd go do it again. And I'll tell you to this day, if we're in any of those areas, places like Daytona Beach, Ormond Beach, St. Augustine, people will come up to me and they will say, you knocked on my door 10 years ago or your wife knocked on my door. And it's something that they've never, never forgotten. Well, that, and that's great. It leaves you a, a foundation. And I guess you have to check your ego because some people don't want to hear it. You knock on their door, you they, know, they'll it's, close it. It's interesting. The um, the number of people that were that were rude on that were very, very small especially compared to the number of people like invite you into their house and want to give you like like cookies and coffee and all this stuff and so you really saw a lot of great people but i'll tell you brian the people that run for office you know the higher political consultants they pull test phrases they do some of this stuff it's not the same as hearing it from the horse's mouth when you actually hear voters tell you you know what's bothering them what their concerns are what their aspirations are it comes, it's much more yep. powerful, it's much more useful than just reading some type of poll data or, or reading whatever, you know, some of the local newspaper says is important to them. And that was something that I always remembered. And honestly, it was something that I always kept with me when I went to, to D.C. as a congressman, because one of the things they were concerned about is, you know, all of our Republicans, they always say these good things, they get up there and then they change and they become part of the problem. And so, you know, that, that was something that, that I took to heart. Right. Uh, Governor DeSantis, our guest. Governor, I was able to get the book on Friday, so I got through it. It's excellent. Two-thirds of which I did not know. 
and I've been able to interview you. I forgot that you actually announced that you're running for governor on Fox and Friends. But the thing that, that really struck me the most in the most ironic fashion is I did not know you got married at Disney uh, right uh, on the chapel attached to the Grand Floridian. It's it's uh, it's an ironic story. So uh, I had gotten back from Iraq, uh, having served. I popped the question to Casey, and anyone that knows Casey knows that was a no-brainer for me to do. Uh, and so it was great that that was happening. And you know, it, it, as you know, Brian, I mean, the wedding is is it's the bride. I mean, what she wants, she wants. And so they, they, she was looking at a bunch of different things. But her family from from Ohio originally, they were just huge Disney people, and her parents had mentioned it, and then they looked at it. And so she comes to me and she says what do you think of Disney? And I had no idea they had a wedding chapel or anything like this. And I'm like, and she says, oh, no, there's a wedding chapel, all this other stuff. And my uncle's a, a, a priest, so he can, I can wheel him anywhere, and he, he performed it for us. And I told her, I says, look, whatever you want. I was like, the only thing I'm putting my foot down on is no Mickey Mouse or any of those people at the wedding. Like, I just need like a, and it was, it was a traditional wedding. Gotcha. Very nice. Uh, and then we ended up going to, um, you did, we did the reception at Epcot. Now, what I didn't put in the book was, um, you know, so we did that. We did a cocktail reception outside in one of the Epcot areas, and then we did the full like dinner, or whatever. In in I think it was the American Experience. The, the we didn't know about rain, right? There was no rain all day, and we get out to the cocktail reception. Our guests are having a great time. They've been out there for like 30, 45 minutes because we had been taking pictures. We get out there, Casey and me, newly married couple. Within five minutes. The heavens parted, <laughs> massive downpour for 10 minutes. It only rained 10 minutes, and then it stopped. Florida. But everyone had to go in. You know, Casey got wet or whatever, and so that was kind of it. But, you know, they say that if it rains, it's good luck. And so it ended up happening, uh, and, and we did. But we always look back and just say, I mean, literally, if the rain would have held off another 10, 15 minutes, we would have been fine. Little did we ever imagine that when we got married there, that somehow we would be tussling with them in politics of all things, because we weren't thinking about politics at all. Second of all, why would you have anything with, with Disney? I mean, they were like the all-American company. And so it's just ironic how, how things work out. And uh, when uh, when this started to happen, you know, my, my, my wife and I just started laughing at each other because of our history. And then, of course, I get to that part in the book when the, you know, get married there. But then, of course, in the news uh, now is what's included in there that we did not know Bob Chapek uh, called you uh, when the everything started coming out with your bill, uh, parental rights bill and people trying to, to to smear it by calling it the don't say gay bill. And he said before coming out, Chapek called you and, and said pressure is building like he's never seen before like this. And one of the reasons is that the new CEO and former CEO, Bob Iger, came out against it, saying it would make vulnerable LGBTQ people uh, put them in jeopardy. And the pressure began to build amongst its employees, many of which headquartered in California. I did not know that. Yeah, so, you know, he, and, and honestly, I think, I, I always liked him, uh, so I got no no beef with him personally, he was a solid guy, we worked together during COVID, they loved, Disney loved us, because we were open, and they were closed in California, so I actually had a good relationship with the company, and we have a lot of the cast members uh, are my supporters, I mean, these are people that voted me in 18 and 22, uh, but this was something that uh, clearly was rattling the company, I think there were probably some board members who were probably uh, right. vocal about about it, including potentially Iger, but I think his initial instincts, and I quote, the, there was a New York Post piece uh, about a week before he had called me where he had said publicly, look, we, we, we don't want to get involved in politics, and, and then he kind of got pushed into doing it, and you know, my advice, advice to him was just like, look, and, and, and he did 48 say, hours, 
you yeah. said. Give it 48 hours. Yeah, because I was like, look, and he had problems with the bill. Some of the, his employees had problems with the bill. I explained it to him, and he got what, where I was coming from. But I was told him, I was like, I was like, look, you know, when I sign it, there'll be a little kerfuffle, but it'll blow over, and don't worry. You know, you don't have to come out and make a big deal about it. But I think that they felt that they had right. no choice based on what was happening. But it was the it was the wrong decision. And here's the thing: for for these CEOs, when they're being pressured by the left, typically there's not a response from the right, and so their incentives are to genuflect for the left or to cave to the left. Now that's bad for for two reasons. One is. If you do that, then you're basically painting a target on your back. They're going to come after you in the future because they know they get you. If you're able to just hold strong, yes, they may raise a kerfuffle for, for 48 hours, but then it'll blow over. They'll go on to the next one, and you're not going to be a, a, a good target. And then, of course, for the second reason it was bad is just because we in Florida were in a situation where they enjoyed incredibly special treatment that no other company or individual has ever enjoyed status. in the history. They had their own country. They had their own government, and then I actually just signed the, the law um, to, to, to formally strip them of their own government. But they had their own government. They were treated so much better than SeaWorld, Universal, and any other individual or company in Florida. And it's like, okay, you've been put on this pedestal. The state is basically joined at the hip with you. And, yes, you have a, a right to get involved in politics if you want. But it really is that the right judgment to go after the parents' rights bill, which really, Brian, I know the media uh, made a big deal about it and some of the activists. But the average parent in Florida that's got a, a kid in it. elementary school, doesn't matter if it's Democrat, Republican, or independent. They want math and science and reading to be the focus. They don't want teachers involved in this type of stuff. And so it was a huge miscalculation, but it also forced us to start looking at the company uh, more, more, give them more scrutiny. And you saw some of the executives on the videos that came out shortly thereafter talking about it was their goal to inject sexuality in the that. programming yeah. for the young kids. And so here I am sitting there, yes, the governor of Florida, but also a dad. You know, I've got a six, a four, and a two year old when i was growing up we didn't have to worry about disney that was a place that you wanted your kids to go or the programming you wanted to watch and so we all felt i think not just me but the people in the legislature like you know you know, we can't have this special arrangement with the company that's going in that direction and so you know that led to to kind of where we are today all right that is just part one of my interview with governor ron DeSantis. when we come back what about running for president what about a guy that he worked pretty well with for quite a while and that is donald trump as well as Kim Bob Iger, Save Disney's Autonomy Zone. You'll listen to Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I'm in Ponte Vedra, Florida. Ironically, this is probably the congressional district. I know it's been redrawn so many times. Uh, congressional district now is Congressman Rutherford, I believe, who represents it. But it was once gov- uh, now Governor Ron DeSantis, who might one day be President Ron DeSantis. I asked him about that, the next step. I know he's focused on this legislative session. I got past that, but I want to ask him about the next step for him. Is it running for president? When will he decide? And what about this guy named President Donald Trump, who wants to be president again? Here's part two of my interview with Governor Ron DeSantis. Let's listen. A couple of things. Has Bob Iger reached out and tried to undo this and fix it? 
I haven't talked to them, and here's the thing: like the the, the self governing that that's done. Uh, they're not getting that back. They're doesn't matter who calls. A, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean that that and because here's the thing, Brian: it is unjustifiable at this point. I mean, it's one thing they did it in the '60s; it was still a sweetheart deal, but there was nobody else there at the time. It was barren land. Now you've got all this activity, you've got other businesses, and it should be a level playing field. But I think really what they just need to do is go back to Walt's vision. Uh, make sure it's family friendly. Don't hijack your programming to try to impose a woke agenda. Gotcha. Ultimately, that's not good for our country or society, but it's also not good for your bottom line. So the book is called The Courage to Be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. So you believe other states can do this. You believe the country can benefit, even though now it was a purple state, maybe a, a, a Republican state now. There are other states like California and Illinois. They're never going to buy into some of the things, and you're going to get huge pushback from their, you know, if you, uh, from their governors or anything. The blueprint won't work everywhere. Wouldn't you agree? Well, here's what I'd say. I mean, you know, I'm not uh, blind to the fact that in California there are twice as many Democrats as Republicans. Uh, and so I think the, it's a it's a big hill to climb. But what I would tell you what we did in Florida is, you know, I came in and won by 32,000 votes in 2018. 2022, I won by 1.5 million. I won Miami-Dade County, our biggest county, 2.8 million people, 70% Latino. I won it by double digits. And so we were able to get working class voters from a variety of, of backgrounds uh, to to support us and support us very strongly. So you look at a place like California, uh, I don't think that could happen overnight, but I think that there's a lot of demographics there that reject the woke ideology. And I, know uh, I think that they week. care about education. I think they want safe streets. I think they want a lot of the things that Florida's done. So what I would tell people is Rome wasn't built in a day, but I absolutely think you right. can make gains in those areas. But think about, Brian, what those governors do they spend half their time preoccupied with florida and they ignore a lot of the problems that they have i mean they're attacking me seems like every other day and so that should tell you something because i don't have to go and and attack other governors i focus on doing my job the fact that they're always attacking me shows you that florida is leading the way and they do view our model as a threat to their ideology so governor when i'm to as soon as i close the book i said this guy's running for president. I go, this seems to be a blueprint to run for president because if I look at your career and if I look at what you say, you don't just say this was good for today. This is good for families. This is good for a state. This is good for a country. You were concerned about the country from the day you stepped onto the, into the uh, campus of Yale, reinforced it, uh, Harvard, fought for it in Iraq. Am I wrong to assume that there's an the excellent chance you're running for president? So what I would say is we've got a lot of support. A lot of people want us to do it. Um, I've got business to attend to. This book is part of that. My legislative session is part of that. Uh, so we get on the end of that in a couple months. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to see um, see where it goes. But I do think it's not all just about who ends up running for president. That's, that's important because I think nationally we need a change in direction. Uh, but I think our individual states do have the capacity to drive the national agenda. You know, Florida drove the national 
national agenda on so many things, on having kids in school during COVID, on opposing the, the, the employer vax mandates and things like that. Education, we've led the way. Uh, I like to see a competition amongst all the, all the red states about, you know, who can kind of outdo each other. So right. I do think it's a blueprint for other states. I do think it can be applied nationally. But it's less about me than about, I think, the underlying principles uh, that we need to restore mm-hmm. our country. I read the whole thing, not one disparaging word about President Trump. Are you guys speaking now? Do you plan on speaking to him? He seems to be taking some shots at you. No, I mean, look, I, I mean, it's silly season. I mean, you know how how some of this stuff goes, and obviously he he does his thing, and it's just that's kind of kind of kind of who he is. But what I wanted to do was was just give an honest appraisal of kind of how we got to this point, the failures of the D.C. Republican establishment, and how Donald Trump was speaking to things that some of the old guard refused to address. And and that's just a fact. And, you know, he can say, you know, what he wants about me. I'll always give him credit for the things that he did uh, that were positive. And I'm, and I'm appreciative of a lot of, of the things uh, that he did. Doesn't mean I, you know, agree with, with everything um, that he's doing lately or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, it's about delivering for the people you represent and delivering for the country. So I wasn't really into kind of trying to, you know, throw pot shots at anybody. My thing was just kind of explaining, you know, my approach to leadership, the issues we've tackled in Florida, and how we've been able to, you know, see really uh, unprecedented success uh, for our state. Yeah, I just want to tell you, the New York Times did a review of your book. Here's a quote. The courage to be free is courageously free of anything that resembles charisma or discernible sense of humor. While his first book was weird and esoteric enough to obviously have been written by a human, this one reads like a politician's memoir turned out by Chad GPT. <laughs> Your thoughts? You who? Chat GBT, <laughs> the virtual. I don't even. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, no. Well, I think that the thing is, is a lot of the, the, the critics will say, oh, someone else wrote it for him or whatever. And, and I wrote it. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. And, um, you know, my my thing was not necessarily to, um, you know, try to do stories or gossip because, you know, that's a lot of the stuff that people like that do. I mean, they do like anonymous sources. They try to gossip. You know, we didn't need to do that. I mean, we're just talking about substance and we're just laying out the blueprint. Uh, Governor, I know you got to run. Uh, you told the story, so it's a good story. It'd certainly be a bestseller. I look forward to seeing you next week as we walk through your sports past. Okay, thanks so much. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Listen, uh, Governor DeSantis lived this stuff. He wrote every word of that book. You could tell almost verbatim where his answers from the book. Uh, and, of course, he embellished on some of them, including where he got married at Disney. And then what happened in the middle of the reception? It got rainy. Uh, and what his one line of the sand was, no characters at the wedding. Kind of cool, kind of funny. And you got that one sentence that he said at the end, I've worked, I really respect a lot of things that Donald Trump done. I think my word was respect. But um, I don't go on with everything he's done, including some of the things he's done lately. So, oops, game on. I just think that with Governor DeSantis, the hardest thing is not so much to fight and to win. Number one, I think he fundamentally likes Trump. Number two, I also think he knows if I win the fight and don't win over Donald Trump supporters, I can't win. Even though I get the nomination, can't win. So it's a tough situation. Nikki Haley's dealing with the same thing. Tim Scott's dealing with the same thing. I think Mike Pompeo will eventually be dealing with the same thing. And Governor Mike and, and Vice President Pence, 
He's already straddled that line better, better than anybody else. See how long it can last. All right. So thanks so much for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show on the road in Ponte Vedra, Florida, to do the interview with the Florida governor and, of course, in the Metro Diner for Fox & Friends. Keep it here. We'll take your calls next, one 408 Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmeade coming up. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We must all keep an open mind as to all possibilities. The data that uh, evolutionary virologists have submitted uh, and published in peer-reviewed journals rather strongly suggests that it was a natural occurrence. There appears to be obviously a disagreement. You have to look at the data. Uh, I don't see any data for a lab leak. Do you believe this guy? I'm not playing an old Anthony Fauci clip. I'm playing a clip from last night. Fauci doubling, tripling down, sees no data that a lab leak. It happened right near a lab that you're familiar with. You try to dismiss it out of hand. They have not been able to to draw it back to any animal. But yet, even though the FBI and Department of Energy said more and more they're pointing towards a lab leak, you have Anthony Fauci trying desperately to hold on to any credibility he thinks he has left, and the media continues to give it to him. Here's the quote. Scientists and the patterns, uh, scientists who have studied the genetics of the virus and the patterns by which it spreads say the most likely cause is the virus jump from animals to humans, a scientific phenomenon known as zoonotic, zoonotic spillover, right, as the, uh, as the Wanan seaboard wholesale market in Wuhan, China. The more they looked at it, the more they can't line that up. That was in 2019. They can't back that up. You know, in February 2020, Cotton says, I don't believe that. Uh, he raised the possibility without evidence, and he said that, that the virus originated at the Chinese biomedical lab. He said it was dangerous. He knew it to begin with. It's too much of a coincidence. So he later walked back to the assertion they did it on purpose because he couldn't prove it. He said, but now he's been proven right. He's been proven right because the FBI, as well as the Department of Energy with their team of scientists, and like you, I, probably, you, I didn't even realize they had a team of scientists, but they do. So Mike Gallagher writes, the American people deserve complete transparency from the federal government on the origins of COVID-19. That means the administration must declassify all the relevant documents, which brings us to the guest last night, Rand Paul, the best guest to have on this, and the sparring that took place with Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci, because he saw the classified documents, can't share it, and had this to say, cut six. I think the preponderance of the evidence now says that it came from the lab. Um, most of the scientists, I think, who have looked at this and evaluated have come to that conclusion. This needs to be declassified. The only reason we know about this Department of Energy, I knew about it because I had a classified briefing. The only reason the public knows about it is someone illegally leaked it. We shouldn't have to have illegal leaks. We need to declassify this information. We need to look at the specific scientific reports. We know their conclusion was that it leaked from the lab. We need to know what are their arguments. We need, it needs to be public. All those reports need to be public. And that's just it. So can you imagine getting this information, knowing it's classified, can't share it. The guy that you're talking to, Anthony Fauci, that you're sparring with, knows that you know, but he can't talk about it because he's going to use that to his advantage. He's going to use that to his advantage because to try to win the argument because he's Anthony Fauci and thinks he's got the public trust. But Rand Paul was going at it from day one. And, of course, everybody know the other channels hated that Rand Paul was doing that. But you look back, you look back now and you see there was a reason. 
cut five. So what you're doing is defining a way gain of function. You're simply saying it doesn't exist because you changed the definition on the NIH website. This is terrible, and you're you're completely trying to escape the idea that we should do something about trying to prevent a pandemic from leaking from a lab. There's the preponderance of evidence now points towards this coming from the lab. And what you've done is changed the definition right. on your website to try to cover your ass, basically. That's what you've done. You've changed the website right. to try to have a new definition that doesn't include the risky research that's going on. Until you admit that it's risky, we're not going to get anywhere. It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for 4 million people dying around the okay. world from a pandemic. And let's let Dr. Fauci. I have to, well, now you're getting into something. If the point that you are making is that the, the, the grant that was funded as a sub-award from EcoHealth to Wuhan created SARS-CoV-2. That's where you are getting. Let me finish. We don't know. Well, we don't wait know a minute. It didn't I come from the lab, but you, all the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab, you, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the right. lab, including yourself. I totally This committee resent, will allow the witness to respond. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating Right. I love this guy using his SAT words with every sentence. First, I'd like to tell you how much smarter I am than you, and I'll use big words to make you think that I went to college and paid attention. Listen, I am so done with this guy, and the fact that last night he hopped on and doubled and tripled down is insane. I am not willing to say they did it on purpose, because to me, if you understand these viruses more than you and I do, you know that you can't launch a virus and not hit everybody you know in your own country. China mocked us, but now has spent the last year watching the virus run rampant with all types of variants in a terrible vaccine to contain it. Now, I am not saying that they did it on purpose. Not sure. But this woman, Dr. Li Meng Yan, is a Chinese virologist, knows the players, knows the lab, worked there. Listen to what you said to Tucker last night, Cut 13. I would say, based on the evidence and the source I have, that the lab, uh, the uh, virus was intentionally brought out of this strict lab and released in the community. However, I don't think the outbreak in Wuhan was intentional. I would say it was because CCP government and the military scientists underestimate the transmissibility. That's why finally it got out of control and caused a local, uh, local outbreak. However, we should know that CCP government intentionally to let it go all over the world to kill millions of people all over the world later. I don't know that, uh, but her credentials are unbelievable. How many people you say, I know people that work in the lab? How many people could say that I worked in that lab? She can. How many people are from China and can be here saying that and knows that they're trying to kill her for doing it? Well, the person who came out, the doctor that came out and said, listen, this is crazy. This is going to spread all over the world. They killed him. He ended up dying, so-called, of the COVID-19 virus. But remember, some people like Tom Cotton were all over this, and other people like John Roberts knew that Donald Trump could not share information but wanted to bring this out. The year is 2020. The month is April. Two weeks to slow the, 15 days to slow the spread, remember? Ended up being two years. Cut for. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. And, and what gives you a high degree of confidence that this originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. 
think about that. Man, listen, do you get mad at Donald Trump for that? I mean, think about this. Even it was, I was reminded of this going through Governor DeSantis' book. So Regeneron was used by President Trump, and he got him better quickly. He called up uh, Governor DeSantis says, get this stuff. This stuff is amazing. It's a miracle cure. Because Donald Trump used it, they started to suppress it. Monoclonal antibodies. They started stopping it going to states because they wanted to sell the vaccine. They don't want to sell treatment. My view is they probably thought if these people think they can get a medicine and get better, they're not going to take the vaccine. So I'm going to limit how much is distributed. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis sitting there with the medical books online saying this is what we need. This is what's getting people better. Instantly, these are the people high at risk. They're smokers, elderly, going through cancer treatment. Those are the ones that were dying, not kids. So uh, that was stopped. And then you think about Donald Trump saying, okay, gave you two weeks. Still got some virus. It's spreading. But we've got to get these kids back in school. The unions come in, and they just stop it. So it's amazing, too. I told you about Anthony Fauci doubling down last night, saying, no, it came from natural causes. CNN is also trying to downplay it. Here's what they put out last night. The Department of Energy low-confidence assessment that COVID-19 was most likely originated from a lab is still a minority view within the intel community. Three sources familiar with the intelligence community findings tell CNN. We don't know who they are. They could be three secretaries. While the FBI also assessed with moderate confidence the coronavirus that caused COVID-19 likely leaked from a lab. That's two. The majority of the intel still believes COVID-19 emerged naturally in the wild. Right. A platypus made out with a hippo. That's what did it. I am sure. Hey, go to BrianKillMeShow.com and order the podcast or whenever you get the podcast, if you ever can, hear it live. And one 866 the number to call to be on the show. And in the next hours, you'll listen to Brian Kilmeade Show on the road in Florida, back in New York tomorrow. Don't move. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We're going to talk to Jeff Landry in a little while, the bottom of the hour, Louisiana Attorney General. Uh, he recently released an extensive report on disturbing findings on public uh, libraries here in Louisiana. Uh, in Louisiana, it's called the uh, Protecting. Uh, innocence reports. Also, he, he is part of the lawsuits that is suing to try to get these ESG companies out of your investments, out of your 401ks. General Jack Keane standing by to unwind what we can expect this year in the Ukraine war. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. I read the whole thing. Not one disparaging word about President Trump. Are you guys speaking now? Do you plan on speaking to him? He seems to be taking some shots at you. It's silly season. I mean, you know how how some of this stuff goes, and obviously he he does his thing, and it's just that's kind of kind of kind of who he is. It's DeSantis week for the interview that we have to his book coming out to the super packed election like of campaign that he's all queuing up to. We know how he would uh, how would he fit in the twenty twenty four race. We'll take a look. Number two. 
Joe Biden, who pretends to be the defender of the forgotten American, of working people in this country. There is no group of harder working people than the citizens of East Palestine. Their president ought to show up and show that he cares about them. Yes, he's good at forgetting his men. Great at men. Uh, Toxic train. Palestine residents beginning to feel ill. Joe is still a no-show, and his continued efforts uh, to deflect to Don have fallen short. Thanks to the Washington Post, we'll explain. Number one. The data that uh, evolutionary virologists have submitted rather strongly suggests that it was a natural occurrence. You have to look at the data. Uh, I don't see any data for a lab leak. Unbelievable. That is not him from uh, two years ago. It's him yesterday. Anthony Fauci does not understand that the FBI and Department Secretary of Ed- and the Department of Energy understand that this thing came from the Wuhan lab. Logic told you, Senator Tom Cotton told you, you pretend to have data that tells you something different. I'm wondering what it is. Uh, let's bring in General Jack Keane now. He knows that China's the nemesis. He also knows that by fighting and supporting the war in Ukraine could be the best way to send China a message. General, welcome back. Oh, delighted to be here, as always, with you and your audience. Yeah, uh, Mr. General, first off, people that don't see the link, I, I've watched this statement over and over again. Our main problem is China. Don't get us distracted in with Russia. They're not thinking in the big picture, are they? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, first of all, uh, the, the reality is if we walk away from Ukraine and Russia is able to, to achieve a victory uh, there, that is absolutely going to in, encourage China and encourage Iran to be absolutely more aggressive. And they will see that the United States and the West folded and, and that uh, they believe they'll have their way with us as well. And secondly, that forces the United States to keep more forces in Europe because Russia is going to reset and likely encroach on NATO. However, if we defeat Russia, which we have a real opportunity to do here, I'm absolutely convinced of it, and drive their army out of, out of Ukraine, it'll take them years to come back, and we can focus on China. We shouldn't be. We should ask Europe then to take care of, of NATO. You provide the overwhelming forces. We're going to pull away here and focus on China because we just bought some time for NATO by defeating Russia's army. So what they want is they want arms. They got arms. They are getting some support, but not the support I think that you're looking for. They desperately want F-16s. Here's what Jake Sullivan, a lot of people think that he is the person telling Joe Biden what to do on this. Cut 29. F-16s are a question for a later time, and that's why President Biden said that for now he's not moving forward with those. So as far as we're concerned, the U.S. effort has got to be to get Ukraine the, the tools it needs for the mission at hand. And the mission at hand is to have a successful counteroffensive where Ukraine is able to take so, back its own territory away from the hands of the Russians. So he doesn't even want to answer the question. He doesn't want to do it. What is the problem with that? I don't understand it. Well, you know, this is like the eighth or ninth weapons request that Ukraine has made, and they reject it. And then many, many months later, they say yes. And I, I've been convinced from the outset that the administration has always been driven by the fact that Russia could potentially escalate to nuclear weapons, and that has always spooked them. When the evidence doesn't support that, Russia has not escalated at all, despite the advanced weapons we've been providing to them incrementally. And for the life of me, I don't know why we would ever give Russia 
because of the threat of the use of a nuclear weapon, a veto over our use of conventional weapons. China, a nuclear power, is looking at that. Uh, Iran, who desires to have a nuclear weapon, is not too far away from it, is also uh, looking at U.S. policy here. It, it shows the definite weakness just in the face of a threat. And the evidence doesn't support it. I mean, why would Russia use a tactical nuclear weapon and expand the war to the United States and NATO, guaranteeing that they would lose and, and Putin would lose his regime power? I mean, it, it, that, that's, that's, what, that's what he would get if he did such a thing. And I know intuitively that the generals who are working for Putin, they know full well that the Russian troops are not trained to deal with radiation on a battlefield. They don't have the equipment. There's been no training. This isn't the Soviet Union's military. And they would be fundamentally exposed. They would they would suffer the same consequences that the Ukrainian forces would. So it, it, it makes no sense to me, Brian. And look at the Ukrainians have got 50 English-speaking pilots identified. They're ready to go into training. It will take us months to get them to make the transition from the MiGs to a, to an F-16. And then we have to get the maintenance infrastructure in for them also to be able to sustain this kind of equipment with the repair parts. So we would never get that in time for their May-June offensive. We wouldn't probably get it uh, operational till the end of the year. So let's get on with doing this. It should have, it should have began last summer, and they'd have it now for their offensive. But it's not going to be there. It, it, the sooner we get it started, the better. What I understand is why don't you just give them the mix? Don't we have MiGs well, in some of the Eastern European yeah, well, countries? Yeah, they, they want the next generation fighters. They they want the, that has the advanced radar systems on it, the, the electronic countermeasures. They want the fourth generation fighter. And the MiGs that they have and the MiGs that some of the other countries have uh, are third generation. So they really want the advanced fighter. So I want you to hear what, uh, first off, here's Condoleezza Rice, kind of singing your song. She says, people don't realize the links uh, between Russia and China and how this is really the same fight. Cut 30. I think we have to recognize uh, that uh, the Chinese-Russian relationship is perhaps more strategic than many of us had thought, that it really is a relationship that is aimed at the heart of U.S. power in the world. And uh, that would say, then, uh, these two are not divisible. So if you want to say, let's just concentrate on the Indo-Pacific, mm -hmm. that's not going to work. And, oh, by the way, many of our allies, Australia, Japan, uh, fundamentally understand that. So uh, she gets that. And, and the thing is, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm shocked at how many so-called conservatives are saying, yeah, this shouldn't be our fight. Let's do the border. Uh, I'm frustrated. Are you frustrated? Oh, that, well, that makes no sense whatsoever. Does anybody actually believe that this administration, if we pulled all the support from Ukraine, is somehow going to fix the southern border or fix the, the horrible sentinel problem with, with the cartels? Or, or solve the epidemic crime wave problem we have in the United States? I don't think so. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Listen, we, we can do both. We can defeat the Russian army in Europe, uh, and we don't have to shed any blood to do that. We have to make a financial investment, send a clear message to President Xi as a result of that. This is what you're going to get. If you deal with Taiwan, send the same message to the Iranians. I think all three of them are really strategic partners. All, I agree with Condi Rice, all with the same objective, actually to weaken the United States and the Western 
uh, democracies so they can have much greater influence in the world writ large. We just got to make, I mean, I think by just reading between the lines and hear what they're saying, I, I think China's willing to give them that hundred attack drones. I mean, what would they, if you were in charge of Secretary of Defense and you find out that China was not, uh, was going to go ahead and do this, wouldn't you come out with what's at stake? Or would you wait to tell them what it means if you, in fact, provide lethal weapons to Russia? Well, I, I take it at face value that they have told China, because they said this, privately what the consequences are going to be. And I, and I, I assume that they have. And listen, this, is, this would be quite significant for China. Uh, I, I see more disadvantages for China than advantages. And the reason is, is because the EU has already said this would be a red line for them. And let's face it, many of the EU countries, you know, have significant trade relationships with China. And that's going to be put at risk. Uh, and frankly, Condoleezza Rice is exactly right. South Korea, Japan, and Australia are all in supporting uh, the Ukrainians. And the coalition that will stand and stand much stronger against China once they provide lethal aid is something they really got to consider. We, w- we will be in a, in a defined Cold War, even though we're probably not going to call it that, if they provide that lethal aid, because they will a- absolutely be Axis partners along with the Iranians. And we will have a, a Cold War situation on our hands, which is very divisible mm-hmm. in terms of the United States, the West, and the Indo-Pacific uh, allies of ours uh, against Uh, China, Russia, and Iran. The the world will change as a result of that commitment. I'm I'm surprised the Chinese are willing to take that risk. I think what's going through their mind, uh, Brian, is they see uh, what we see at the Institute for the Study of War, that Russia can definitely lose this war to the Ukrainians. They they have the capability to drive them out of, of Ukraine. And China doesn't want the United States and the West to be strengthened by the fact that Russia's army is defeated in Europe. And therefore, President Xi is much more challenged as a result of that in terms of his own national objectives in the Inter-Pacific region particularly. So I want you to hear William Burns, CIA director, I think he's got a pretty level head, uh, said about why China might be hesitant on Taiwan. You've said Xi Jinping told his military to be prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. Um, The intel community seems a little bit more ambiguous in its conclusions here. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's an outright invasion, or do you think China's more likely to slowly strangle democracy in Taiwan? We need to take very seriously Xi's ambitions with regard to ultimately controlling Taiwan. That doesn't, however, in our view, uh, mean that a military conflict is inevitable. We do know, as has been made public, that President Xi has instructed the PLA, the Chinese military leadership, to be ready by 2027 to invade Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that he's decided uh, to invade in 2027 or any other year as well. I think our judgment, at least, is that President Xi and his military leadership have doubts today about whether they could accomplish that invasion. So that interesting. Were you surprised to hear that? No, I'm not surprised surprised to hear that from him. Um, here's my concern about what he's saying. Um, I, I mean, to, dismissive, be, to be dismissive of that threat uh, is one thing, but not to, not to understand the reality of what we're really dealing with. We, 
China has a military advantage in the Indo-Pacific region that is real. Every war game that's played tells us that. And, and the reality is we've got to put more forward deployed forces into the region and move with a sense of urgency about it. The Indo-Pacific commander just said it, I was, and he, I respect his courage. He said, we are in a very dangerous situation, and we've got to move with a sense of urgency to resolve the deficiencies that we have. They have more ships, more airplanes, more offensive, more defensive missiles than we have. And that is a reality that their, their PLA generals certainly are very much aware of. They play the same war games we play on a telling President Xi. What my concern is we want to do, not do anything to incentivize them to take that step. And that's, that's the other thing that I would have said uh, from the CIA director. But he's just focusing on what the analyst assessments are, and he didn't bring into it the erosion of military capability that we have in the region, which China is very, very much aware of, and we got to fix it. I hear you, uh, General Jack Keen. Look forward to uh, look forward to seeing how things play out, and we'll be reading the uh, the Institute for Study Award to keep up with it, and hopefully interviewing you a lot, uh, Governor uh, General Keen. Thanks so much. All right. Take care, Brian. Thank you. you. Always good talking to you and your audience. Uh, absolutely. Thanks so much. one 408 7669 Speak of talking to the audience. Let's get on the line. Let's talk. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A couple of things. Has Bob Iger reached out and tried to undo this and fix it? I haven't talked to him. And here's the thing. like The, the, the self-governing, that, that's done. Uh, they're not getting that back. They're doesn't matter who calls. A, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, that, that, and because here's the thing, Brian. It is unjustifiable at this point. I mean, it's one thing they did it in the 60s. It was still a sweetheart deal. But there was nobody else there at the time. It was barren land. Now you've got all this activity, you've got other businesses, and it should be a level playing field. But I think really what they just need to do is go back to Walt's vision, uh, make sure it's family-friendly, don't hijack your programming to try to impose a woke agenda. Ultimately, that's not good for our country or society, but it's also not good for your bottom line. Right, and that's Governor Ron DeSantis uh, joining us today on the launch of his new book, talking about taking down Disney. And basically, they got to have a fire department like everybody else, need building permits like everybody else, a police department like everybody else, and stop acting like your own island. Now, the circumstances are they also owe $750 million in taxes, but they really have helped Florida. I mean, in central Florida, they put it on the map. They made it a place to travel to. They've exposed so much. But at this point, they should have understood they were playing with dynamite when they went out and started criticizing government policies and getting involved in this woke agenda, especially with this governor. And you heard what he said. He got on the phone with Bob Chapek, and he said, guys, don't, don't, Bob, don't overreact. Just understand, if people can have a uproar, 48 hours, it'll calm down. But I thought it was also interesting, and I'll play this a little bit later on in this hour, what he said about running against Donald Trump and some of the some of the slings and arrows that have come his direction. And he says, well, it's silly season. Wow. Now, it's going to get, get real serious real quick, but right now it's silly season. But he also points out in his book, when 
the Army Corps of Engineers was sitting on their hands instead of addressing the allergy issue, the algae issue, which he actually read about and found out about how to tackle it. He had the president call up and said, do me a favor and stay all over this. He also uh, wanted to get people reimbursed for a natural disaster that hit. And if they did get reimbursed for that, they would have, uh, I think it was Hurricane Michael, I'm not really sure. He says it would open them up for different eligibility, different towns and different cities and different states. And he did it anyway because Trump want, asked him to, because Trump was asked to. So they really work well together, moving the embassy. He was one of the real fighters for Trump who never bought into the Russian hoax. And Trump never forgot that. But now it looks like they might want the same job. And that's big. When we come back, the whole ESG thing, politically correctness, getting your portfolio not to invest in oil and gas, it's got to stop. That story next. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You clearly had a movement within the corporation itself, of course, Burbank, California-based elements of it, that said it's their job or it's their goal to inject a lot of this sexuality into the programming for young kids. And I'm a dad, six, four, and two, and my wife and I, and I know parents throughout Florida, uh, we want our kids to be kids. We want them to be able to enjoy entertainment, school, uh, without having an agenda imposed upon them. And so if you're going that way as a corporation, uh, those are not the values that we want to promote in the state of Florida. And they're pretty hamstrung because headquarters in uh, in Berkeley, sounds like Berkeley, Burbank, they're way to the left. Maybe, I don't know for sure, in Orlando, more to the center, more to the right. Bottom line is, they were threatening coming out against this legislation in Florida. They might have been based in California, and it lost them their autonomy status. It is devastating, it seems. We'll discuss that, too. With me right now, though, uh, was my privilege to bring in a special guest, uh, Jeff Landry. Uh, He's an attorney general over in Louisiana. Uh, 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 Yes, in Louisiana. Uh, he's got a lot of things on his plate, including what's happening with ESG, including what's happening in libraries, including what's happening with big tech. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, welcome back. Well, Brian, thank you for having me. And I want, I want to tell you, you know, over the Christmas holidays, a good friend of mine, John Gosselin, who lunch down at the mouth of the Mississippi River, gave me your book uh, on Andrew Jackson, the Battle of New Orleans. And I just want you to know it is outstanding. Thank you. you. Great job. Great job. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that we can go there and see the battlefield as it existed. I mean, if people don't go to Louisiana, I know it's hot in the summer when we were doing the stand-ups for the special. But if you if you really want to see it, you could actually see what they saw. Yeah, yeah. Just, I just want to tell you, great job. Great Thanks. job. Love the book. So uh, now, Mr. Attorney General, you got your hands full. First off, I want to ask you about ESG. You're finding out that a lot of these, you know, vanguards and others, maybe vanguards leaving might be an exception, are deciding they're going to get more into politics and policy rather than making maximizing like people's investment, laying off oil and gas investments. How do you feel about that? Well, look, I think it's important for Americans to understand exactly the impact uh, that these decisions can have detrimentally to their retirement portfolios. I mean, these are companies that are basically making uh, – that, that, that retirees or people working 
uh, towards retirement, invest in and rely on to invest their money in companies that are supposed to turn out a profit. And what we've seen is that they haven't. And that's a big problem. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, going out and basically at a time when oil prices and energy prices are high and those companies have an opportunity to make a profit. Of course, again, the reason that energy prices are high is because the government has suppressed the ability of us to rely on reliable power. But again, making company making investments that are contrary to companies who are making a profit, it just flies in the face of what retirement portfolios are supposed to do. And aren't they supposed to inform you of that? Aren't they supposed to inform you and say, hey, listen, I'm for green energy, and if you're going to come with me, we're not going to invest in anything like oil and gas. Shouldn't Shouldn't they be responsible to say that? They absolutely. I believe that they have a fiduciary duty to do so. I mean, you know, we have honed in on BlackRock. Uh, and the portfolio that it has, because not only do they do that, here's the other problem. The hypocrisy is unbelievable. We know that BlackRock at one point basically forced Exxon to divest itself of properties, of oil and gas properties, while at the same time promoted Chinese companies who invested in oil and gas properties. Unbelievable. I mean, I mean that, it really is. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, yeah, so what can you do? Well, I mean, look, I think that, number one, we can go after them because they have a fiduciary duty yeah. uh, to their investors. And so there's an investigation that a number of attorney generals are looking into at this time uh, to find out whether or not they breach that fiduciary duty. Because think about there are a lot of public pensions uh, that, that, that these folks invest in and manage. And if they breach that fiduciary duty, we can go after them and we will go after them. So I understand 25 states hit President Biden with lawsuits over climate action targeting Americans' retirement savings. So you guys are taking action. Absolutely. Look, we, you know, one thing I'm proud of is that here in Louisiana, we have built an unbelievable legal team. It's headed by our Solicitor General, Liz Murrow. Uh, we were, I think, one of the New York papers uh, had, had targeted us for being the number one state going after the Biden administration uh, and winning. And I, look, we wear that with a badge of honor. You should. Now, what's going on in your libraries? Well, look, about six months ago, our office started getting calls from concerned parents and librarians about sexually explicit materials within uh, the public libraries in Louisiana that minor children had unrestricted access to. We believe that parents and guardians have a right and a responsibility to guide and direct the reading and listening and viewing choices of their own children. Just like they do with Netflix or when we go to the movie theaters. That investigation showed us that there were actually sexually explicit material that minors should not be, should not have unfettered access to. Uh, In a conversation I had with uh, John Rich, country music singer John Rich up in Nashville, he, he was seeing the same thing up in Tennessee. We then opened up a hotline where we asked parents to, to basically tell us what they were seeing, what they think we should do because we want to put the power back in the hands of the parents. We ended up compiling all this information, looking at the Louisiana statutes, realizing that there was an exemption, that that this was not really against the law, that books in the library, once they're in the library, have a First Amendment right. And so we put out a report called Protecting the Innocents. And so what that that report does, and you can go to agjefflandry.com if you're anywhere, now, you have to be, I'll warn you about this, Brian, you have to be 18 years old or older 
to okay. download this report because we put the findings. We put the books that we found that, that children had access to inside this report because we want gotcha. people to see the filth that was in those libraries. And so what, what that report did was it created a guide of model legislation and policies so that we put the power back in the hands of parents out there to be able to change either legislation or the policies in their public libraries. Okay. And what it does is it creates yeah. – okay, go ahead. No, that, that's great. I, I think it's great. John Rich, again, involved in something else for the, for the betterment of society. He's an unbelievable guy. I want to bring you to the last thing. I have a relative at Tulane. We know about what's happened to you, a terrible, embarrassing mayor. They're trying to recall her. It's a murder capital of the country. You have 400 cops down. You had to hire private security in order to provide any type of law enforcement for Mardi Gras, which is going on. So what, what is it going to take to bring New Orleans, make it safe again? Well, it's going to take a new governor. This year, Louisiana is like Mississippi and Kentucky. It's the only three states that are in play. Uh, there's a gubernatorial election. I'm running. Uh, and, 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 of course, I have been pushing back against the social justice woke mob that's been infected into our legislature over the last seven years that wrecked our criminal justice system. Okay? And, and we, have been, we have been concentrating on New Orleans. And it's going to take a governor because the problem in New Orleans is that it's under a federal consent decree that was signed back during the Obama administration, Eric Holder days, which places a federal judge in charge of the city of New Orleans Police Department. That that consent decree has created what I've called and criticized hug-a-thug policies that have that have restricted the ability of the New Orleans Police Department to actively police. And then number two, it has just crippled recruitment in the town. So right now you've got a city the size of New Orleans, which is in the top 10, the, the number one most dangerous city in the country. And we need about 15 to 1,600 police officers. And we've only got, I think, about 600 at best. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And that's a problem. So, so we've got a multitude of problems, but I can tell you, if we're lucky enough, if the people respond to our message and we win, we are going to bring that city back into a safe city and make it a great city, the kind of city that you that you wrote about. Yeah, I mean, the history's still there, the tourist attraction, Mardi Gras, people still come, uh, but they're doing it at their own risk. There's a reason why it's the murder capital of the country, and law enforcement is not supported, so they're not going to do it. People just say, listen, I could do better. And the way you have the encampments now of homeless, they seem to be have a thriving homeless community underneath these trestles and tunnels. I can't believe it. They're having a great time playing music. They have full tens, ten cities there. Oh, listen! I saw one guy the other day. He's subleasing his tent. I what? Mean, I mean, you you can't make this up. You can't make this up. And look, you know what you bring up, Brian, is, is is a great problem that is infecting all of America's great cities. Okay, and part of this homeless property problem is the mental health care crisis that needs to be fixed. Okay, and then and then there's a law and order component to that as well. But if we don't if we don't start to get hold of these cities, they're going to implode. We know what's happening in San Francisco. We could just go on and Chicago. on. I can tell you though, we're gonna see if we can make a difference here in Louisiana and and, and, and I'm gonna tell you it's a beautiful city and it should not go to waste. I hear you. And you see you're also taking legal action too to rein in these uh these woke policies when it comes to our we were once an energy-independent country, and now we chose not to be. 
Uh, Absolutely. It makes no sense. We should have reliable, affordable energy that, that, that makes America the greatest economic engine in the world. Yeah, I've never and seen anything like it. it. They must, the, our enemies are laughing how we're doing these self-inflicted wounds. Uh, Jeff Landry pushing back as the AG over in Louisiana. Thanks so much. Uh, best of luck with your, uh, your governor run. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I uh, hope it. to come back and talk about some other issues again. Absolutely. We will do it. Uh, meanwhile, one 408 I'm going to be able to get on the phone with you. Today is the day that Ron DeSantis launched his book. Is this the beginning of a national campaign that could lead him to the White House? We'll discuss it. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I read the whole thing. Not one disparaging word about President Trump. Are you guys speaking now? Do you plan on speaking to him? He seems to be taking some shots at you. No, I mean, look, I, I mean, it's silly season. I mean, you know how how some of this stuff goes. And obviously he, he does his thing. And it's just that's kind of who he is. But what I wanted to do was, was just give an honest appraisal of kind of how we got to this point the failures of the D.C. Republican establishment and how Donald Trump was speaking to things that some of the old guard refused to address. And and that's just a fact. And, you know, he can say, you know, what he wants about me. I'll always give him credit for the things that he did uh, that were positive. And I'm, and I'm appreciative of a lot of, of the things uh, that he did. Doesn't mean I, you know, agree with, with everything um, that he's doing lately or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, it's about delivering for the people. People you represent and delivering for the country. So there is interesting, especially as things he's doing lately. Don't you think that's interesting uh, that he that's as close as he got to firing back where obviously he's not for January 6th. Obviously, he's not for dinner with a white supremacist or lunch. Kanye West having to, not the greatest move in the world. You know, so maybe he's not somebody that sits there and goes after networks. So what is it that he doesn't get along with At one point? They're going to be going at it. And one thing that Governor DeSantis had that Jeb Bush has a lot of money, a lot of donors, a lot of political uh, support. But what he has is what Chris Christie had. Chris Christie in his first term had a great track record in the first year and a half. People were so excited about him. They said, run for president. He said, no, I just got here. They've never had that momentum again. Um, Here's one thing that's interesting. Governor Jeb Bush, who knows him and thinks he should be the next president, did say this, though, when it comes to Disney. Cut 26. So I think it's important to, to recognize how important Disney is to the state, but also take a stand against these woke employees that temporarily were kind of running the asylum there. I don't think I would have punished Disney for the foolish uh, nature of, of a few 20-something employees that, um, for whatever reason, the CEO felt, felt uh, you know, caved to. Right. Um, I'd give them a break. I think... Both have a point. Governor Sununu also feels the same way. But what John DeSantis looks at a little bit different. He comes up with a bill for kids. He tells him, don't come out with this don't say gay bill. It's not what it's called. It's nothing against people uh, that have uh, sexuality, LGBTQ, YMZ, whatever it is. Nothing against them. 
So it's it's to prevent kids from wanting about talking about gender politics and picking a gender before third grade. They should not be talking about sex. That's it. Don't make an ass of yourself and go out there on a limb and condemn this policy because some idiots on the left are mischaracterizing it. And he tried to rationalize with me as well. I'm getting so much pressure from Burbank. And he said, listen, put up for 48 hours. And he didn't do it. And then he came out against the bill. He goes, really? Power of Disney against the bill? Biggest company in Florida? I'll, get, I'll show you power. Boom, you're done. I'm pulling your, your autonomous status. And Bob Iger in Governor DeSantis' book was the first one to say that the company should be standing up against this don't say gay bill. With just like the Jim Crow 2.0 election reform in Georgia. It was totally mischaracterized. Don't buy the cartoon. This governor didn't buy the cartoon. So I asked Governor DeSantis, excuse me, Governor Sununu about this. And you could tell that he looks at him as somebody has got to compete against. Cut 27. I like Ron. Ron's a good governor. No, let's be very clear. But I, I, I'm just a big believer that as someone with a, a little bit of a national voice, we need leadership that holds both sides accountable. And, and this, high, this idea that one party can take higher moral ground on any significant issue or transparency, both sides are blowing it out of Washington, D.C. I do believe I'm, a, I'm from the live for your die state. I believe there is a limit to government. I don't believe in, in telling private businesses what to do. I do believe in individual li- in liberties and freedoms so and, and local control. Disney, even when I might, I might disagree he, with that. Were... So the one thing that I was that was with Neil Cavuto, he said something very similar on our show. But would, would I think that he should answer this question, though? I know Governor Sununu. If he passed a policy that would, let's say, school choice, and someone labeled it as anti-minority, when it's clearly minorities benefit more from school choice, in theory, than anybody else, would he say, okay, let these companies go ahead and vilify my proposal? Or would he go out and say, listen, don't try to destroy my legislation and then henceforth the state or make me somebody that doesn't like minorities or in the case of Ron DeSantis, somebody that doesn't has a, a bias against gays when it's not that at all. So they stood up and he sounded off and he took action. I don't think it would be much different than Governor Sununu, but to Governor Sununu is such a great politician. He said, this is my chance to let people know I'm going to be different than DeSantis as a candidate. I have no links at all to Trump. Even though they're breaking up now, uh, DeSantis, who was one of the most staunchest supporters, and justifiably so, in 2016 to 2020. And it was the tweet that Donald Trump gave that helped propel the little-known congressman with all the talent and great resume, um, who was trying to be a congressman for the first time, excuse me, was trying to be a governor for the first time against Adam Putnam, evidently an agriculture secretary. I knew very little about except for he had a ton of money, except for especially the sugar lobby, which is huge in Florida. And he was using it to pull ahead and just destroy DeSantis. And it was a tweet by Donald Trump that helped people take a look at DeSantis. Next thing you know, he pulled away, got the nomination, and we win by just about 50,000 votes. Then win by 19 percentage points. Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. I'm in Florida, back in New York tomorrow, 48th and 6th. Don't move. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. This hour is going to be great. Trey Yinks is over in Ukraine. Jonathan Turley is not. He's in uh, Washington, D.C. At times, more dangerous. 
Uh, meanwhile, we'll talk about what's going on from the legal perspective, everything from the four-person in Georgia who really wowed us last week with the most bizarre series of interviews I've ever heard, including all the Mike Tyson interviews combined. And if you put that with, uh, I mean, just absolutely insane. Oh, we'll talk about that and what it means for the president, the former president's legal fortunes and so much more. And also talk about what's going on with the COVID virus. Meanwhile, uh, the president of the United States is going to be in Virginia Beach. Many people have surmised that this looks like a campaign stop. Remember, he's got to win Virginia. Last time there was a Virginia election, a Republican won it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I read the whole thing, not one disparaging word about President Trump. Are you guys speaking now? Do you plan on speaking to him? He seems to be taking some shots at you. It's silly season. I mean, you know how how some of this stuff goes. And obviously he, he does his thing. And it's just that's kind of who he is. Wow, kind of who he is. Silly season. Governor DeSantis, big book out today from the interview. Uh, with us to his book coming out to the super PAC elections to his fundraiser over the weekend 2024 race seems to be heating up and he is near the top spot what do you give him him his chances are you weigh in number two joe biden who pretends to be the defender of the forgotten american of working people in this country there is no group of harder working people than the citizens of east palestine their president ought to show up and show that he cares about them it would be great, wouldn't it? And it would be great if the Secretary of Transportation uh, would show a legit, legitimate interest. And also, he's under investigation. But I digress. The toxic train. The Palestinian residents begin to feel ill. Joe is still a no-show. And he continues his efforts to deflect to Donald Trump. And guess what happened yesterday? Donald Trump was exonerated. Not by Donald Trump Jr., but by the Washington Post. Number one. The data that uh, evolutionary virologists have submitted rather strongly suggests that it was a natural occurrence. You have to look at the data. Uh, I don't see any data for a lab leak. Wow. An apology won't cut it. And all the pandemic anger and disdain has come screaming back as another federal agency goes all in on the lab leak theory. And guess who has not backed off? That's not old Anthony Fauci. That was from yesterday. John Chili joins me now, constitutional law professor, George Washington University, but the top of his resume, Fox News contributor. Jonathan, when's the last time you did a resume? <laughs> yeah, very, very long time. I think I did it before I asked my wife to marry me. And I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, well, she demanded a resume and an essay. <laughs> but she does. She did demand an essay. More about your personal story? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, Jonathan, what would be at the top? Would it be law professor or would it be Fox News contributor? Uh, well, I, I think it would uh, obviously be Fox contributor. But frankly, I, this is never what I really intended to be. I, I'm, I, I, I've lived a life of woe because growing up, all I wanted to be was a Zamboni driver. And, and <laughs> every day I regret my decision not to go into that field. Right. It would be less controversial, more, less people. i tell you what, very few people would be mad at you. You kind of, you know, exactly. you'd be looked at as a savior, fixing the ice. You know, Zamboni drivers live to a long, long age because you don't take your work home with you. <laughs> that is very true. And you know what? If you're going to have a long age, there's not many spots open. So they're very coveted. So <laughs> a couple of things. So here's Anthony Fauci when the FBI came out and says it looks like it's a lab leak. And then yesterday they came out with a – a story, obviously, the Department of Energy. I did not know they had a, such a prolific science department. Said the same thing. 
So what do you think Anthony Fauci did? Not apologize. Cut one. We must all keep an open mind as to all possibilities. The data that uh, evolutionary virologists have submitted uh, and published in peer-reviewed journals rather strongly suggests that it was a natural occurrence. There appears to be obviously a disagreement. You have to look at the data. Uh, I don't see any data for a lab leak. Well, he's not backing off, is he? No, he's not. And this is one of the reasons why I think that the emphasis here should first and foremost be on the censorship as opposed to the science. Yep. We can have this debate. There's going to be arguments on both sides. The problem is we're denied this debate. And you have this alliance of the government and media and academia, which shunned and silenced any expert who came forward to say, look, I think there's grounds here to consider this possibly man-made. And what's really troubling is that all of these forces, particularly the media, shut down a public health debate. And, you know, President Biden said a while back, you know, he accused social media companies of, quote, killing people because they weren't censoring enough COVID disinformation. And, you know, censorship doesn't save lives, but it can cost lives. It can cost lives by cutting off public health debates over things like the efficacy of masks and the necessity of closing schools. And, yes, the origin of of COVID-19. So I find it interesting is that it seems as though people have seen the classified information, really believe this is a lab leak. And they see it together and they both vow, obviously, against the penalty of uh, uh, breaking the law to keep it, uh, you know, to, to keep their silence on it. And that's why there's such a push now to declassify this information. Here's Rand Paul, cut six. I think the preponderance of the evidence now says that it came from the lab. Um, most of the scientists, I think, who've looked at this and evaluated have come to that conclusion. This needs to be declassified. The only reason we know about this Department of Energy, I knew about it because I had a classified briefing. The only reason the public knows about it is someone illegally leaked it. We shouldn't have to have illegal leaks. We need to declassify this information. We need to look at the specific scientific reports. We know their conclusion was that it leaked in the lab. We need to know what are their arguments. We need, it needs to be public. All those reports need to be public. Uh, and the thing is, like you said, what's going on with the suppression of opinions? Uh, you can have different opinions and use big words when people really zero in on your inauthenticity in Anthony Fauci's case. But... The whole thing is, I never heard, for example, why it would be bad if I heard what Dr. Atlas had to say or Bud Acharo had to say about this, or what Donald Trump believes that Regeneron was very effective in getting his rapid recovery when he got COVID-19. It just seems that though we witnessed over the last three years something I haven't seen in my life, and that is people evidently looking out for us by saying the vaccine was the only way, and the vaccine, you better take it, or else you're going to get, uh, or or you you're going to be just excoriated in society. Yeah, and I think part of the pressing question is is you have all of these reporters that just recently were denouncing these scientists as racists and conspiracy theorists. You know, the, the Washington Post declared this is a debunked conspiracy theory based on what? You know, obviously there was a basis for this theory. It was a conspiracy theory. The New York Times science reporter just last year said that this is just a racist theory that reporters shouldn't even discuss. 
But all of that has just been met with this giant shrug. It's another media my bad moment. And we're expected just to forget it, like Russian collusion, like the Hunter Biden laptop, like the Lafayette you know, Park photo op. All of those, the, the whipping of, of border agents, all of those were false stories that the media stayed in lockstep. And when they were disproven, the media just shrugged and walked away. The difference is this was a debate shut down about public health. This affects people's children, their health. It, and we never had that debate. And I don't think we're going to get it now. I think what you're seeing is this spin to say, well, you know, there's still not a consensus. That's not the problem. The problem is that we never had the debate because of some of these same figures who are still writing on the subject. Very true. I want to go to Georgia now. Uh, the president's got a few, the former president's got a few hurdles to clear. I don't know what's really going on in New York. It seems to be pure politics. Then we have the Mar-a-Lago investigation, just like there's a Joe Biden investigation. In theory, they would probably nullify each other. I can't see you. Uh, indicting one and not the other. So maybe they're canceled out. I'll get your take on that. But more importantly, I have not spoken to you, Jonathan, after I heard this last week from the jury four person in charge of the grand jury person in charge of analyzing whether Donald Trump and about 12 others should be indicted for election meddling from Rudy Giuliani on down. Listen. I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. You know, I know it's a jury appears, but please don't say that she is my peer. Uh, <laughs> number one is, what, what are you thinking? If, you, if you're in all seriousness, if, if Donald Trump is your client and you hear that this is the woman in charge of the jury, yeah. You know, the funny thing is, I think that I had the distinction of being the first private counsel to represent a grand jury. That was the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons uh, uh, plant jury. And uh, in that case, we spent years because the jury was trying to release information they considered to be environmental crimes. Uh, and the, the government, you know, ground them into a pumice. And it finally sort of ended in a tie and we both walked away. But here you've got a, a, the head of a, of a grand jury walking out and just talking in this conversational way uh, about the grand jury. And I think this is part of the sort of social media generation, you know, that, of course, I can talk about it. I, I can tweet it out. That's, that's part of, of the world we live in. Well, that's not part of the grand jury world. And in some ways, Trump is incredibly fortunate. You know, it, it's not that his legal position has improved uh, in terms of, of the merits, whatever they may be. It's just that everyone around him seems to be slowly disassembling. You know, it, you, you, had, you, know, you have Biden and then Pence accused of the same thing. You've got this grand juror in, in Georgia making a complete nuisance of herself. Uh, it's really quite impressive. Right. Uh, fortunate uh, to a degree, uh, but he's got so many legal problems, some of his own doing and some have just been targeting, in my view. Here's, but she's an unserious person. Uh, you see that her social media has her basically being a witch and all types of claims to herself. I don't know who did a background check on her, but if she's the best the grand jury has, the person elected to represent them, right away, if Jonathan Turley is President Trump's attorney, do you file an appeal if there's an indictment? 
You know, it's going to be very hard. You know, it depends on in terms of using this to to quash an indictment. Yeah. Uh, it's it's my guess is that it will not be enough to quash the indictment. But I got to tell you, the whole Georgia case has always struck me as weak. Unless they have some new evidence, I have not seen anything that made it a credible threat. The reason is that much of it turns on this conversation that Trump had with Georgia officials uh, in which he talked about the necessity of finding 15,000 votes. And that has been played endlessly as his demanding that they essentially invent 15,000 votes. That's one interpretation. A perfectly valid uh, interpretation is that he was simply saying, in what was effectively a settlement call with opposing counsel, that you know, you don't have to find a huge number of votes for this election to be overturned. The conversation was about how they had looked for votes and didn't find any. And you can explain that statement as a defense counsel by saying he was saying, look, if you do a statewide review, you don't have to find many votes for this election to be found invalid. That's that's what his point was. I know him pretty well. That was it. He wasn't saying go make up some, draw, draw up some ballots, but people will think what they want. Uh, I want you to hear more from her and tell me if this furthers the case for, uh, for I guess, an appeal, if there is an indictment. Uh, let's go to the Emily. Here's more from Emily Coors. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? What would your reaction be if the DA decides against bringing any charges after what you've seen? I will be sad if nothing happens. I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And if it was just a perjury charge? I will be happy as long as something happens. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Is that her job, to make sure something happens? Well, yeah, I'd be I'd be concerned if she is in fact as reported a witch. That would that that could be a serious problem. Thank you. Uh, you, you you definitely want to keep anyone who claims to be a witch happy, but I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's a very bizarre take. You know, I, I wasted a lot of my time. You better bring me a scalp. <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about Democrats who are clamoring for these charges is that they very well could get an indictment from this prosecutor. She basically ran on indicting Trump, and they could potentially get a conviction. In a, This is a good jury pool for the prosecutor to bring that type of charge. But in the end, um, I think that there's a good chance it will be overturned um, if it's based entirely on this 15,000-vote statement. You know, you, Trump was allowed to seek relief from the state. The conversation he had was with people who were opposing him in potential litigation. And I just think that a criminal defense attorney could make fast work of that. Now, whether they came up with the ultimate Colonel Mustard in the dining room with a butcher's knife, then we'll see. But we haven't heard that. No, we haven't. Jonathan, it's very interesting times. When do you think we'll find out about an indictment anyway? I would think it'd be relatively soon. Uh, you know, with, with the, the schedule is sort of interesting because uh, Trump doesn't have to waive a speedy trial. Uh, yeah, but it, the closer we get to the primary season, the more weird this gets. Uh, you know, I'm... in some ways, she may be trying to play so that she doesn't have to face a 
a dismissal before the election. But it's not it's going to be messy either way it goes. Gotcha. Jonathan Turley, always educational. Thanks so much. I cannot wait to see your resume back in a moment. (laughs) Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fault for this disaster lies first and foremost with Norfolk Southern. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw needs to come before the Senate, answer questions under oath, and explain to the American people exactly what, what went wrong and how they will prevent accidents like this from happening. He should not duck. He should be there. He should come before the Senate. And we are asking Mr. Shaw to do just that. Well, can you believe it? A Democrat speaking out about this. I know Senator Brown came out a little bit, but nobody like way more than J.D. Vance. I know Governor Mike DeWine's been there, got hurt yesterday. I think he did something with his tibia, fell off, I don't know, walking or something. But uh, now these people in the in the area are starting to feel respiratory issues. And separately, they're going to doctors and seeing some consistency. And I'm seeing at least the EPA director says he's setting up permanent shop there, putting up a tent uh, or he's getting an office. And I'll give him credit. At least he's showing up and talking to people every day. That goes a long way. You hear their stories and you get the experts involved. You could honestly say you you legitimately care. And what is more important? To, and also, we got to get some regulation when it comes to these trains. Uh, I mean, three people, 150 cars, toxic chemicals. You want that turning over and being exploded in your backyard? At least inform me that it's coming. I know there are tracks there. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I know the administration says uh, as long as it takes. I think with the right weapons, it shouldn't take so long. And quite frankly, Martha, this whole thing is taking too long, and it really didn't have to happen this way. This was a bipartisan delegation uh, to Munich. Um, My delegation in in, uh, Ukraine all agreed with Zelensky that the attackums and the F-16s were appropriate. Right now, I talked to General Milley last night. I don't think it's off the table. I think with enough pressure from Congress on both sides of the aisle, uh, we can get into Ukraine what they really need to win this fight. I mean, come on. What is his problem? What, why should Congress have to pressure the president to do the right thing? It's just so maddening. And, you know, you, you talk about a guy bipartisan, working across the lines. I want to support the president, even though we arguably, and I don't want to argue with it, I think it's a fact. Personally, I think that if Afghanistan, we don't leave $7.2 billion worth of equipment there and just decide to leave, lose 13 lives and just embarrass ourselves by the way we left with people hanging off planes, there probably isn't an invasion. But now that we're helping uh, Ukraine, can you please give them everything they need? Uh, joining me now from Ukraine is Trey Yinks. Uh, Trey, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Right. I'm, I mean, you got you got running water, got electricity, things like that. Yeah, this assignment uh, it was a lot easier than some of our previous assignments. Uh, 
spent most of our time in Kiev, but uh, did go to the southern front and see what was happening there as the Russians are still trying to take territory in that part of the country. What kind of success are they having? They're not having much success on the southern front. The Russians are pushing pretty hard on the eastern front. They're focusing their efforts around the strategic city of Bakhmut. And they've been trying to take this area for months. And they've been unsuccessful. The southern front remains a little bit more quiet. But still, there are daily artillery strikes and shellings in these areas where there are still a number of Ukrainian civilians. So it's a very difficult part of the war for the Ukrainian army as they try to figure out where they need to move this Western equipment that's coming into the country because it's such a massive front line. Do you know, I mean, do you sense that they really go ahead and train 200,000 more people? Uh, or is that just a number they threw out there? Well, the Russians are trying to put as many people into the fight as they can, and it is the one major advantage that they have against the Ukrainians. Vladimir Putin fights war in a different way. Uh, he has a different strategy to take territory. And the main strategy is using humans as cannon fodder. And it's been extremely difficult for the Ukrainians, especially in the Donbass region, to defend against because they're able to just throw oftentimes Wagner mercenaries, these prisoners and convicts that have been recruited from jails and prisons across Russia and put them onto the battlefield. So the Ukrainians have a, a massive problem on their hands because they are outnumbered in many parts of the country. And it's part of the reason that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is really pushing Western allies, including the United States, to supply these long-range weapons so that they can hit Russian positions at the back of the battlefield. And they just don't trust them. They said, if we even attack them, they could start landing in Russia and they could expand this war. Into I mean, at this point, can't we take the Ukrainians at their word? It's a great question. And it's something that we've posed to Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky, also Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov, asking if the supply of battle tanks, for example, or longer range missiles, if those weapons come with any conditions. And so far, they've told us they do not, because from their perspective, their goal is to liberate Ukrainian territory and Ukrainian territory only. And so that's what they're hoping, that their allies take them at their word, that they are just trying to get back territory that belongs to them, their sovereign nation, and then stop there after they're able to do that. But Every indication is that the spring and summer months are going to be extremely bloody and extremely difficult battles ahead. Right. Uh, I think by all accounts, the Ukrainians haven't pushed their counter-surge, their counter-surge. And this might be the middle. Is this the beginning of the Russian surge right now? Yes, it is. And it appears it's underway, but it's unclear how long they'll be able to push before they run low on resources, things like ammunition and shells. The Ukrainians are expected to launch a major counteroffensive of their own in the spring, but a lot of things go into that. Some of it has to do with the weather conditions and whether or not it's muddy on the ground, and they're able to use um, these vehicles, these Bradley fighting vehicles that are now entering the country to push forward. And then the other thing has to do with the supply of weapons. So far, the Ukrainians have been getting just enough weapons to stay in the fight. And while it's a lot of money going into Ukraine and a lot of ammunition, it is not enough to totally change the balance of power on the battlefield. And that is really what you've seen these American officials heading to Kiev and, and others trying to basically say you need to give Ukraine enough to win the war, not just maintain a war of attrition. Because if they don't win this year, there is a real understanding by leadership in Kiev 
that the Western support could start to dwindle. And that could be a very dangerous situation, not just for Ukraine, but for the entire NATO position in Europe, because it ultimately leads to more instability across the continent. And Trey, the, the one thing that I think is pretty clear since you first started reporting from uh, from Kiev and around Ukraine is that the Iran, the Iran, China, Russia alliance uh, seems to be galvanizing in a, in a very, in a very, de, in a very deliberate way. Do you agree? Absolutely. And you and I spoke about this on your show over the weekend. The possibility of China getting more directly involved in the fight and supplying the Russians with ammunition or a variety of weapons that they would request really creates a scenario that is quite difficult for the United States because the Biden administration only has so much leverage over China to force their hand one way or another. And so far as these statements go back and forth, the Chinese have made very clear that they won't be controlled by anyone. They're going to make a decision what's best for Beijing, and they'll ultimately move forward in that way. But all reports do indicate the Chinese are looking at options to supply the Russians with weapons. And that would be a very, very dangerous escalation in the fight. We've already seen it with the Iranians providing the Shahid drones that have been used to attack Ukrainian civilian targets across the country. And the fact that they're able to produce these drones supply them to the Russians and get them on the battlefield in a matter of weeks is a very, very difficult thing to defend against. And it creates a whole nother request list for the Ukrainians because they say, look, the Russians are going to continue firing and launching these drones at Ukrainian population centers. We need more air defense. And so it is slowly moving toward a much broader conflict. And that is why Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning of the possibility of World War III because he believes that if more countries do get involved and start to supply weapons, that it ultimately leads to a much wider war. I mean, give you an example. Russia says, hey, if you give me more drones, I'll help you with missile technology and maybe rockets. Guess where they head? Israel. Israel's been on the sideline because uh, the Russians have let them bomb in Syria with impunity, these terror groups. That will pull them off the sideline immediately. So uh, then that spreads to the Middle East, obviously. I just have to tell you, what is underreported is what seems to be the kidnapping of children by Russian soldiers and brought in for forced adoption in Russia, many of which I understand were on display recently uh, on on television. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, it is a very concerning part of this story. Ukrainian children being forcefully deported to Russia and then sometimes put up for adoption or taken to facilities. It is something that we reported pretty early in the war, and we started to hear about when we reported in the Kharkiv region. We spoke with a man who had just returned to his village, and he told us about how when the Russians came into this territory that hadn't yet been liberated by the Ukrainians, they were forcefully deporting people and separating sometimes children from their parents. And I think it's just one thing on a very broad list for the Russians that they are using as a tactic of war to instill fear into the Ukrainian people to try to use their tactics as an effort of power over the Ukrainians. And it's very concerning because when that happens, it's very difficult to track where people go, where they're taken. And sometimes families can be separated forever. They're unable to track down their relatives, especially children. And so it's certainly a a concerning report and something that the international community needs to remain focused on because there's all these sub-stories amid the war that aren't getting that much attention. 
So you wrote this column called Hell on Earth. I reported from the war in Ukraine. What I witnessed still haunts you. And some of the things that you go to as you report, you have emotions. You see this horrific situations, let alone what happens to our own colleagues. How are you dealing with all that? And, and why did you thought? Why did you think it was so important to write about it? I thought it was critically important to write about this issue because it's something that historically war correspondents don't talk about. They come home from assignment and oftentimes mask their emotions and what they've seen and pretend like everything's okay. And it's extremely difficult to report in these environments. We have seen truly hell on earth. We have watched as the burned bodies of children were dug up from grave sites. We've watched as Ukrainian soldiers come under fire and lose their comrades in, in battle, we have really seen the worst of humanity on display. And so really my inspiration behind writing this op-ed, and it's something we rarely do as journalists, taking opinion pieces, it had to do with really just bringing to light mental health in the industry and a reminder to our colleagues across the board that it's okay to talk about what you have seen. It's okay to ask for help, but it's okay to go to therapy and to talk about your emotions because much like soldiers, we see hell on earth and we have a job to do. We have to stay there and report amid these very difficult days, but it doesn't mean that we have to remain silent about it. And so that was my motivation behind writing the piece was to encourage people to come forward and get the help they need if they do need it. And to remember that we cannot do our job as journalists on the ground, if we do not have a clear mind, if we're not taking care of ourselves. Absolutely. I totally understand it. And you would expect it. It was one of those things I've thought about in the past, but you guys seem to shake it off and just move on. And, and now that to write this column, you realize that nobody really does. Uh, Trey, continue to do great work. Thanks for writing the column. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, Trey Yanks from Ukraine. Uh, listen, when we come back. Uh, we'll take your calls. 1-866-408-7669. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The Department of Energy is just one intelligence agency. Eventually, all of the intelligence agencies will publicly concede that this was a lab leak. It's been a slow roll. I think that that's been intentional from the Biden administration. The fact that the CIA hasn't assessed anything, are, are you kidding me? Our premier intelligence agency with eyes and ears around the world, with all of this intelligence, with all of the scientific evidence, three and a half years later, can't make any assessment with any confidence. That's garbage. The truth is they can, but they don't want to assess with any degree of confidence, which they would have to do, that this originated from a lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology because they don't want to deal with the geopolitical ramifications of having to confront China. Which is unbelievable. As former director of national intelligence, that's John Radcliffe. I never thought about that. Why did the FBI weigh in and the CIA is still up in the air? What else could be more important than the thing that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans? Well, certainly, and plus people dealing with long-term COVID and everything else that goes along with it. Frank, you're listening on WABC. Hey, Frank. 
Yes, uh, Brian, uh, I just want to ask you, why is President Biden allowing our strategic oil reserves to be depleted? He doesn't negotiate at the international level with exporters. Do you think that there's something that has to do something with him running for president? Because that can't be fair, re releasing our strategic oil reserves and depleting our nation's oil products. Without having a plan to put it back. And at what rate? You got to put it back now at, what, $70 a barrel? When it was put in there, it was probably $27 a barrel. So it, to me, there's no plan to replenish our weapon stocks. There's no re plan, plan to replenish our oil and gas. Good point. I forgot about that. He, he know what he wants to do? He wants to somehow keep the price of oil and gas down uh, as long as he can while transforming the way we use energy. That's the problem. And he doesn't mind depleting our defenses because of it. That's never meant to be used to get the price uh, down unless, in, uh, unless it was an emergency. It's an emergency for him politically. Hey, Rick in New Jersey. Hey, Rick. Hey, how's it going, Brian? Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Um, I can give you all the facts on the global warming scam, and all I want in exchange is Emily Campagno. I can't do that. Uh, she's seeing somebody right now. But uh, all the facts on energy, clean energy, is, uh, is certainly good. Uh, number one, we talked about this earlier in an earlier hour. I love the 24 uh, attorney generals are going after the biggest uh, finance, finance firms in the country, including Blackstone, saying uh, you have to do what's best for your client for your customer, uh, for the company that hired you. How dare you divest from oil and gas companies because you feel as though that doesn't go with your political agenda and in turn hurt somebody's potential to maximize the money invested and the money earned. You know, I'm not asking to financing a fascist regime, but if you want to finance Exxon, if you want to get involved with Luke Oil or anything else, BP, you should be able to do it if you assess that that will get your customer, whether it's a firefighter or a multimillionaire or somebody's 401k, a union member. You have a right. You have, a, you have an obligation to maximize that benefit. And because you're against oil and gas, you're not investing in that. So 25 attorney generals are going after Blackstone and others uh, to make them do it. I understand that Vanguard, another mutual fund, has decided, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to start investing in oil and gas. I can't do that without a, without a uh, you know, without being able to sleep at night. So I'm going to be able to do that. So I love that the AGs are doing that. And we talked to one at an earlier hour uh, on this show. So the other thing, the revelations happened over the last 48 hours. It's what's going on with COVID-19, and we still don't know the origins. No pressure from the administration uh, to get to the bottom of it. And for the longest time, if you came out and you brought up that you believe this came from a lab, like John Stewart even kidded about and most people would thought about, and Tom Cotton was the first to say it publicly, you were vilified. Here's a look at how the rest of the media handled it when people brought up the fact that this virus came from the Wuhan lab. A conspiracy theory going around that the coronavirus originated and was perhaps man-made inside a lab in China. Ignore the dog whistles from the president. Let science prevail. For this theory that the virus was accidentally released from a lab in Wuhan, that's his new angle to feed the wing nuts. We know that it's been debunked that this virus was man-made or modified or anything like that. Both scientists and the U.S. intelligence community agree that this coronavirus was not man-made. That is not a possibility. There's a danger in the administration either putting out uh, theories that cannot be substantiated uh, or uh, deliberately provoking uh, a fight uh, during the middle of a pandemic. Many of us feel 
that it is more likely that this is a natural occurrence as has happened with SARS-CoV-1, where it goes from an animal reservoir to a human? Right. I will just assume that there's a Chinese animal uh, that had uh, relations with another animal, and the result was millions dead around the globe, and now China getting the worst of it, arguably, than anybody else. So the point is, that Jonathan Turley pointed out, it's not so much saying I want an apology and Tom Conn's not asking for it. It's you not only didn't agree, you vilified and you marginalized, and in some cases, you shadow banned and banned. That's the problem. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.